0: Guess that wasn't funny. Okay, it's <laughs> a little bit of a sore spot, maybe. Um, open a Bible. Open your Bible to uh, Mark chapter ten. If you have a pew Bible, that's one five seven zero. Let me say a couple introductory remarks while you turn there. There is something very special about the passage we're about to look at. It's not just a passage about divorce and kids and a guy who didn't want to give up his money. Mark as he put this gospel together. Remember, none of the gospels are in chronological order strictly. So all the gospel writers are assembling these episodes so that we'll get it. Okay? And so if you look at this passage, in chapter 9, Jesus, there's this thing of the disciples arguing who's the greatest. He predicts his death, and then he says, the last will be first and the first will be last. Right? Then there's a couple episodes that work that out. Then there's the passage we're going to look at today, and then there's another time he says the first will be last, and then he predicts his death, right? And then there's the episode that Lloyd preached on about three weeks ago where the disciples have an argument about who's the greatest again, okay? Do you see how it's bookended with the exact same themes, and in the middle of those three themes is this passage, and you'll be kind of like, well, why? It almost seems like if you weren't paying attention, you'd just think Mark was putting in a bunch of different stuff because he had to get some things out of the way before he went and wrote about Jesus being killed. It's not what's happening. And we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at this, okay? So let's start in Mark chapter 10. (coughs) Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, and he answered Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and put his hands on them and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery. Do not give false testimony, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We've left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, No one who has left... Home, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or fields for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Wow. Picked on divorce and money. Has everybody offended yet? <laughs> we. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to—let me tell you just right up front, this is going to be a two-weeker. I got to the end of writing point one last night, and I had nine pages, and I just figured I better stop there. So it'll feel like—it's just a gimmick to get you to come back next week, is really all that is. Um, now, two weeks ago before Easter, I preached on the passage before this where Jesus says, in or, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, here's what you do. You become last. You become a humble servant of everyone. And by that means, you'll become great in the kingdom of God. And so I talked about how the Christian life is essentially a race to the bottom. Okay? And that's really evident in a number of places in these two chapters of Mark. So Jesus is going to the cross. This is his last major time period to really get the gospel to sink home with his disciples. And the main thematic focus of this time is you've got to die. You've got to be last. You've got to be a humble servant. You've got to do what I'm doing, is what he's saying. He's not saying, I'm going to go to the cross so that you can be totally triumphant in every way, and you can have power and glory and money and fame and health and wealth. He's saying, I'm going to go to the cross— Your life is going to be about you going to the cross. And just like I'm going to come into glory through my suffering and humility, so you are going to find the glory, power, peace, fame, love, whatever it is good you find, you will find it through the means of the way of the cross, just like me. And so there's three places. Here are three places where he does that, where he says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last, the servant of all. Or, but many who are first will be last. And then, in the passage that—that um, that that verse is actually running, it's 1045, I think, where Jesus says, The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for any. Which is just another way of saying, I had the right to be first. I became last, so that you who are last could become first. Right? Now, then the Apostle Paul picks this up in the book of Philippians. So it's all through the New Testament. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. It's command a necessary part of the Christian life. And I think most people would recognize idealistically in, in relationship to society that the vision of a community of people all serving one another and putting each other's needs first really is a beautiful bit vision. I mean, people would recognize that a person who does that would live a deeply noble individual life. And if a lot of people did that together, that would be a really ideal community. Okay? The problem is that's not what we really think about the world. Let's play a game, shall we? <clears throat> um, let's say I gave everybody in this room— let's say there were only a hundred people in this room, okay? And let's say I gave everybody a red button and a hundred dollars, okay? Everybody has a red button and everybody has a hundred dollars, okay? Everybody has the th- same thing and everybody's button does the same thing, okay? Now, all you're going to decide is whether or not you're going to push the button. And I'm going to ask you to give your answer in just a minute, okay? So you want to actually listen to this. Um, If you push your button, two things will happen. If you push your button, everybody else will lose two dollars. You won't get anything. They'll just lose two dollars. So if you push your button, everybody else instantly has 98 dollars, but you still have 100, okay? Now that might sound kind of vicious, but the important thing is what the second thing the button does. If you push the button, the second thing that it does is it halves the damage you take from other people. So if you push your button and 60 people push their buttons, you only lose $30. No, I'm sorry. You only lose $60. But if you don't push your button, you pay up $20 because you lost $120. So if you push your button, you take $2 from everybody else, but you also protect yourself by having it. Meaning the worst you can do if you push your button is break even at $0. You had zero coming in, you had zero coming out. Right? So if nobody pushes their button, everybody walks away with a hundred bucks. Right? But if lots of other people push their buttons and you don't push yours, you could be up a creek without a rowing device. So the question is, are you going to push the button? And there's a number of different rational logics that you can use on this. You can say, listen, if, if nobody pushes it, we all get $100, it would be crazy for anybody to do it. Right? Or you can say, listen, lots of people are going to be worried about other people pushing it. And lots of people, therefore, are going to in self-defense. I have to do it in self-defense, or I'm going to end up owing money even though I didn't do anything wrong. I'm a good person. And I'm thinking about pushing it. What do you think everybody else is going to do? Right? Or you can say, um, you know, I'll just push it to start things up. (laughs) Or you could say, listen, I don't care if I have to pay up $100 when I'm done. I'm not going to push the button because it's the right thing to do. And my my ethical upstandingness is worth it. Or you can say um, that, listen, I just don't have an appetite for being a chump, okay? I'm not going to be taken advantage of, and so therefore I'm going to push the button. Okay? So here's the question. Would you push the button? Go ahead and raise your hand if you would push the button in this game. Okay, there's like eight of us. All right, my wife and I would both definitely, I would definitely push the button. (laughs) Definitely. Um, In case you want to know how this turns out, because they've played this game with actual real people, if you, what what happens is between 30 and 70 percent of people do it. If you average that at 50, about half of people will push the button, which means if you push the button, you took 100 damage, but you halved it, so you get $50. You walk away in the black. If you didn't push it, 50% of people pushed it. So 50 pushed it, that's $100. You get nothing. So the little boy there is squatting because that's what you get. Right? I mean, the, the reality is when this game is played in real life with real people, the people who don't push the button, who trust in the rest of humanity, who allow their happiness to be put on, to be dependent on the benevolent behavior of other people, get nothing. The people who bet on themselves, who act in self-interested ways to protect themselves, get $50. They do a lot better than the people who don't. And... It's one thing to accept generally and idealistically that when Jesus says we should all serve each other, that we should all race to the bottom, that we should be full of humility and service up to the point of sacrifice, and we all go, oh, that would make a wonderful, lovely community, wouldn't it? That's, okay, that's one level. That, that means nothing. Because what most of us really believe is that. That we cannot afford to live that way. If you maybe if you make a million bucks a year or something, you can live that way. But you, normal people cannot live that way. We'll just end up being taken advantage of, right? How many people like I'll just be taken advantage of? I'll be all burned out. I'll serve other people, and what'll they do? They'll just they'll just have the spiritual gift of receiving. You know? Thank you so much for doing that for me? And and one of the reasons we think that isn't just because we're irrational, it's because we are rational, because we've been alive. And we've, we've watched other people behave towards us. We've watched ourselves behave. And what most of us really believe, most of us really believe that we're decently good people and we're better than most. But we also really know deep down that we're not very good people. Which means that what we really believe deep down is that we're not very good and everybody else is still worse. And so we know darn well that if we're going to do this, we're going to be nutty. What we're, what this is, and the reason that's important is that if, you're, if we're going to live racing to the bottom every week, every day, with everyone, consistently and joyfully, that's going to require a huge transformation and the deepest motivational structures of our heart. I mean, we are going to need a heroic level of belief— To overcome the emotional fear and mental sense that following Jesus this way isn't rational, isn't going to be good for us, is going to hurt us and our children. So here's what I need to tell you as we look at this passage. Like all deep medicine, this gets worse before it gets better. If you you didn't like the whole the first shall be last, last shall be first, you're going to like this one even less. Okay, I'm just going to tell you right now. I mean, and there's no anesthesia for this. You need just to get a stick out and bite down on it for the next 20 minutes, okay? But, but we need the full course of the medicine here. Because if we just stop at, we should be humble servants. We're not going to be humble servants. What we need to recognize is that there's another step to this that's even harder than accepting that the first need to be last. Last what we need to recognize is the central verse of this next passage is this one. When Jesus says, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will certainly not enter it. So to receive a kingdom is to receive the nature of the kingdom. It's it's ethics and what it is and what it's all about, and it's all about what Jesus is about. And he's saying, if you can't receive those truths like a little kid, you you can't be part of the thing that is, the kingdom of God, which will exist forever, and Jesus will be king of it, right? Now, what that means is, is that if, if, if we want to believe like a hero, like the kind of motivation it's going to take to actually do this, here's what Jesus is saying. Here's how you get there. You believe like a little kid. Now, you thought last week was hard to believe, right? Right? If you want to have heroic faith, the kind of faith it will take to actually have humility, to actually serve others to the point of sacrifice, you are going to have to believe like a little kid. That's what Jesus is saying. And this whole passage about divorce and this whole passage about this rich young man are just servants to that truth. Because they represent the two greatest idols that will keep us from being able to see the beauty of the kingdom of God. Because we don't see it because of the two idols embodied in the passage about divorce and the passage about this rich man. One of the things that is important to recognize is that there is a paradox in how we understand things. Um, In the scientific fields, it's called confirmation bias. That is, you see what you want to see. The problem is, there's no such thing as raw data, either. It's a paradox. And um, in uh, in the—between the—actually, right before World War I, there was a school of economics in Germany, and it was—it was called the Younger German Historical School of Economics. And basically what the—what the school was trying to do is they said, listen, what we need to do is we need to just accumulate economic information. No theories. No theories. You got to have data before theories. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to accumulate and accumulate and tabulate and accumulate economic information, and then when we lay it out, right, a theory will emerge from the data. Well, it only took about 20 years for the school to be entirely discredited because it produced nothing. Because everybody who's taken an elementary class in science knows that's not how science works. There is no such thing as the disinterested accumulation of data. I mean, remember the scientific method? What does the scientific method start with? A hypothesis, right? You have an idea. Then you go look for data that would be there if your hypothesis was right. Because there's no such thing as just going out and looking for raw data. You wouldn't know whether to count carrot seeds or or occurrences of cancer in a 50 mile radius. There's no such thing as disinterested data. So you have to have a theory you're working with when you look for anything. But when you already have a theory, what do you see when you look at your data? What you want to. So that in all thinking, scientific thinking, philosophical thinking, social science, any kind of thinking there is, buying groceries thinking, in any kind of thinking, there is this paradox between you've got to have a theory to try to see what there is to see in the world, but when you have a theory, when you look at the world, you're going to see what you want to see. It's called confirmation bias. And there's really no way around it besides the spiral of trying to disprove it, trying to—and going on and on. That's why we have textbooks. Because you can't wait for every 18-year-old to go to college and scientifically work their way through all the things we've taken hundreds of years to learn because it takes forever because of confirmation bias and technolo- technological issues, right? What that means is— is that when we listen to Jesus' teaching, we already have a theory of the world, and so we see what we want to see. And so when Jesus says something, we look at that and we go, man, that is, that is crazy. It's not because it's crazy. It's because we are preset based on our assumptions to find what Jesus says crazy because of assumptions we may not even know are there. And the two two of the biggest ones that make what Jesus says sound irrational are our assumptions in relationship to freedom and our assumptions in relationship to value. The passage on divorce will represent our assumptions about freedom. And the passage on the rich young man next week will represent our understanding and assumptions on the basis of what's valuable. Why wouldn't the rich young man sell all his possessions? because he didn't think Jesus' offer was really more valuable than what he had. Or he would have trashed everything in a second. He thought it was a bad deal. And why would the Pharisees so adamantly believe that divorce for any reason, as long as you filled out the right paperwork, was okay with God? because they had a fundamental commitment to freedom. I cannot be expected to stay in a bad marriage. That's crazy! Right? So, let's look at—this is one, but there is no two, okay? So. Freedom—our freedom idols blind us to the gospel. That's why we have to believe like a little kid. I mean, remember before? The kids come up here. I'm like, I just go, let's stand on one foot. Most of them just stood on one foot. They didn't ask. They just did it. They just stood on one foot. I said, do this. They did. Most of them did it. Unless you've taught—the ones you taught to be cynical, you know they were. But most of them just did what they were told. Now listen, when Jesus says you have to believe like a little kid, he is not saying It's easy. He's not saying, well, little kids believe easy, so you should believe, and it's easy. No, it's not easy for us. Jesus never said it was just as easy for adults. He said we just have to do it. It's what, what little kids do naturally. We do only through being terrified. I mean, to, to believe like a little kid just will naturally believe takes every bit of inner bravery and moral— I mean, every, all the grace that we can receive from God, and we're still kind of like, okay, I'm going to try it. That's what it's like for us when we believe like a little kid. Jesus knows believing like a little kid is the hardest thing we could possibly do. But what he knows is is our our idols that create these negative confirmation biases, they've got to go. And the only way they can go is if we take our biases and put put them over here and let Jesus totally rework it. If we're not willing to do that, we will always just see what we want to see. And Jesus will never sound rational. His teachings will never sound beautiful or good or whole or better or that they'll bring peace or justice or truth or that heaven could be real. And none of that will sound plausible to us because our freedom and our value confirmation biases will keep us from possibly believing that because we're too cynical. So the question you can ask about The passage on divorce, the first part of Mark 10 is, why did the Pharisees get the Torah's teaching so wrong? Why did they get it wrong? They come and question Jesus about divorce, which of course was just baiting him into an unpopular position. This is one of those situations where you're having an argument with somebody in front of other people, and they know their position. It might not be more valid, but it's definitely more popular. And everybody thinks they know that. And so if you just get the person to admit they're on the other side, you've got them, even if they're right. It doesn't matter because your view is more popular. That's what the Pharisees are doing here. They're baiting Jesus. And Jesus just goes, what does the Bible say? And they say, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away, right? He He said, basically, men have the right to divorce their wife at any moment. So long as they write, as long as they write a certificate of divorce, they can send her away. Right? It's pretty convenient, right? Okay, here's the passage they're referring to. It's in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. There's only two places in the Torah that mention divorce. Um, One is not relevant to this, and this is the one that they're essentially quoting. And this is what it says. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her— it's actually not a very good translation, but let's just go with it— and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house— And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then the first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That word carries connotations that in that in our context it doesn't carry in there. So just I don't have time. We'll get into all that. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So essentially, what is this a command for? Does it have much to do with divorce? It doesn't really. It has everything to do with familial stability, right? You can't be swapping wives. You get one shot at a woman, that's it. You can't be trading off and spinning around and sending them all over the place. Women have the right to be in one family, in one house. You do not have the power to do whatever you want with your wife. And you can't, like, your buddy can't marry her, and then he goes, I don't like her, and then you take her back. If you have such a problem with her before, you can't just marry her back. This doesn't work that way. Now, what that, what that means is when you look, when you look, start to look carefully at this passage, it's not about divorce at all. It doesn't affirm divorce. All it says is this. Given that divorce exists, given that some men will divorce their wives, here are certain things that have to be in place so that women are not deeply mistreated in the process of divorce. That is, that you, if you divorce your wife, she has to get a legal, verifiable document that demonstrates she is free from the marriage covenant so that she can remarry if she wants to. And... Men can't do whatever trading they want. There are very specific single, single turn limitations on what's possible in these sort of romantic transactions. That's what the passage actually says. But what did the Pharisees get out of it? What they got from that was, it says right there, you can just write a paper and she's off. And there's plenty of fish in the sea. I'm not going to want to marry her again. This is a great deal. Right? William Lane, a commentator on the New Testament, says this, Moses permitted divorce, providing a certificate of divorce was given to the wife. This provision assumes the practice of divorce and describes a right to which the wife is entitled. She is to be given a bill of divorce which authenticates her release from the marriage contract and affirms her right to remarry. The Mosaic provision was made for the contingency of divorce, but it did not itself determine that the contingency was right or wrong. Theologians have, have called this a divine concession is the vocabulary. Because when the Torah was given to the Jewish people, they already had a culture. They already had practices. So when God gave them the Torah, he wasn't creating a culture out of nothing. He was giving the Torah into a culture in which slavery already existed. Divorce already existed. Infidelities already existed. Lots of things already existed. And there were some things that there were not social constructs ready yet that if you got rid of them, it would actually be worse than the beginning. For example, in terms of slavery, slavery was the only form of social security and personal welfare in in that nomadic culture. So you could outlaw slavery, but it just meant that the destitute were all the more destitute. They couldn't be bound into a family that actually could pay their bills and have enough food and all that kind of thing. Because once a slave was in that family, there were all kinds of regulations about how you had to treat them and when you had to offer them freedom and all that. And so most— Old Testament theologians look at a number of commands in the Old Testament and say, or in the Torah, and say there are some of these that when you look at them you go, oh, why? Is it, that's that's just kind of embarrassing now. And he says it's it's what's called a divine concession. That is, God is pulling the culture in a trajectory in a direction, but it's but it's not there yet completely. And as the Bible unfolds in a number of these a number of these issues, you be, you see the trajectory clearly in Revelation. For example, the issue of slavery is a, is a classic one. In the Torah, it's regulated. By the time you get to the New Testament, it's, it's, it's losing its muster. And by the time you get to the book of Philemon, Paul totally logically undoes it by saying, think about this, I'm going to send your slave back to you Philemon. He's your brother. He's my son. How should you treat him? Which takes us back to confirmation bias. Because in 1850, when northern Christians looked at the Bible, who were abolitionists, what did they see? They saw tons of evidence in the New Testament that American slavery was an abomination to God. When southern slaveholders looked at the Bible, what did they see? Confirmation that slavery was just fine. Had nothing to do with a problem with the Bible. Had everything to do with the confirmation bias of the people reading the Bible. And it just so happens that the confirmation bias of the northern slaveholders happened to also be right. You can have a bias— and that bias can happen to be right. Now, the other thing that is missed here is that in the, in the passage in Deuteronomy, 20, Deuteronomy 24, where it says that the husband finds something indecent about his wife, the more literal translation of that word is nakedness. That, that is, that the indecent thing— isn't just anything the husband doesn't like, but that's a relatively technical word that refers to in some kind of sexually oriented context in which there's some kind of discretion. So basically what the passage is saying is if, if, if you marry somebody and you find out that she's committing adultery, then the husband has the right to divorce his wife, which is essentially exactly what Jesus says in the New Testament, right? It's exactly the same. And in the time of Jesus, there were two different schools of thought on this. Um, but the Hillel school, which was the one that like, hey, just write her a certificate and send her off. That was by far the more popular. I wonder why. Right? Because human beings throughout all of history have always wanted as much moral freedom as they could possibly get. Why? Because moral freedom has the potential to equate to happiness because you have more options. All of us believe that having more options is good, unless it limits other options later. Hardly anybody believes limiting options is good. Therefore, we want as many options as possible. So a looser divorce law from the Bible, particularly if you can, if you can quote a passage, that's good, right? That's good. And so certain rabbis were like, yeah, that's what it says. And what did people go say? They didn't look it up on Wikipedia, did they? They just went, that must be what it means. That's fantastic. Because they already had a confirmation bias for freedom. Is there anything, and let me just ask you this. Is there anything different about you or me? It's just, we're just worse, aren't we? I mean, don't we have the exact, practically speaking, don't we have the exact same view on divorce as the Pharisees did? I mean, don't most of us believe, really, that we can't be decently expected to stay in a bad marriage if it's no fun anymore? If the love is gone, if the relationship is dead, if the insert your aphorism for I don't want to be in this anymore, here. I mean, that's what we believe because that's what we do, friends. There's no difference in the church or outside the church. And irreligious and religious people believe the exact same thing on this. Right? Right? We we, we believe the exact same thing. We know that because we do the exact same thing, right? But now it's even gone further than that because now, now people just won't get married. Because somehow that's better. It's the same idol. It's the freedom idol. It's the freedom. It's still the freedom idol. It's now I don't want to get married. It's like the freedom idol gotten bigger, right? But listen, it's not just about marriage. This passage refers to divorce, but it's about all of our freedom idols. Some of us don't want to have children, because, or more children. Or some, because, not because we don't want to have more children, or because we believe there's not enough grain in the world to feed everybody, but because we do not want another two and a half years of never being able to go on a date because we're terrified that our child is going to get sick, and all the freedom losses that come with another kid. Or we don't want to take a job that has more responsibility, that doesn't have more pay, even though the opportunity to work something redemptive in the culture, the community, is much greater in that job. Why would we take on that more responsibility without having more pay? It's just more constriction on the freedoms of my life. Or serving when we could be at leisure. There's a hundred applications of why our fundamental belief and our need for freedom creates a confirmation bias that makes Jesus look nuts. And the only way to get past that is to believe like a little kid. To say, Jesus, I have too many biases to get around. Help me here. Because I am terrified to believe that I don't need this freedom to be happy. I'm terrified to believe that. I mean, aren't you? I am terrified to believe that. But when when Jesus talks with these guys, he says, listen, guys, it's like on the third page of the Bible. It says, When God created man in his image, because he quotes both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 1, he he says, he creates both images in his gender. And he called them male and female. Because they're for each other. And he says, then he brought them together and made them one flesh. So what Jesus is basically saying is, the creation of two complementary Complementary genders, and the fusing of their union in the institution of marriage. Institution's a bad word for us just because we hate it. But in the union, the oneness, the—come up with an adjective that inspires you—in marriage is the crowning glory of the creation of the triune God. Who the heck do you think you are splitting that up? Like, he's just like, if you would have just read the first two pages of the Bible and just said— based on the purpose, what do I think God wants me to do with this? He's like, you would know. (laughs) It's, It's right there. So why, why could they pull out this passage from Deuteronomy 24, but they didn't see that in the first two pages? And are you a better man or woman than those Pharisees? Believe that at your own peril. I bet a lot of these Pharisees were good men. They just had the same sinful confirmation biases we all have. But here's what I think we need to face. I think it's true that in order for us to believe like a hero, we've got to trust like a kid. I think that's true. But here's what I also think is true. I think the only way that we're going to be able to find that trust is when we can first trust the one who gave up his freedom to make us free. The one who can teach us about the loss of our own potential freedom and what it might accomplish for us ought to be the one who had unlimited, ultimate, cosmic freedom, laid all of that freedom aside, took on a position below a slave to become crucifixion fodder, to be thrown in an unmarked grave like a worthless criminal he became that level of slave in order to procure freedom for all of us who were always had always been slaves and didn't know it so that we could be free that is the one to trust that is the professor that can cure The confirmation bias that comes from our freedom idol. The one who looked at his own freedom and put it aside and became a slave for the good of slaves who he would make free. The last part of that passage says this They were on the way up to Jerusalem, which is this is the end of Mark. He's going to Jerusalem to die. It's the only time he goes to Jerusalem in Mark's gospel. He's going to Jerusalem now. It says, on the way up to Jerusalem, Jesus was leading the way. And the disciples were afraid. And again, he took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed into the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and they will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. But three days later, he will rise. Think about that. Think about what that was like. They're going to Jerusalem, and he's like walking out in front, like a man walking to his death, and the disciples are following them, and they're the ones afraid. Jesus isn't afraid. He's not afraid. He was not afraid to be made a slave and a criminal. He was not afraid to be treated like garbage, He was not afraid to to lose his freedom so that we might have freedom. And only by trusting that one will you be able to believe like a little kid because you'll be believing him. If somebody asks you to believe like a little kid, what's the question you have to ask? Who do I believe like a little kid? That's what makes all the difference. If you're going to put unconditional trust in somebody and believe like a little kid, everything is resting on who? Who? Who do you trust like a little kid? This one. The one who became a slave so that you could be free. And the one who promised that through faith he would make you free from the slavery of sin and death and self-centeredness and self-righteousness and religion and irreligion and all the costs of worshiping our idols of freedom. Because the one the Son sets free, Scripture says, is free indeed. God— Um, we pray that you would help us to believe like a little kid. That we could actually live out the call and the requirement to race to the bottom, to make ourselves last if we want to be great in your kingdom. And we pray that you would help us to believe you like a little kid in the area of our need for freedom. We pray that you would help that idol die, that we would see that you are the one to trust in the area of our, of our freedom fears. And we pray that you would, you would take us through our fear, that we would be able to follow you as you walk boldly in front, leading us in the way of the kingdom, that we would follow you even if we're afraid that we would end up where we need to be going. We pray that you'd make it something that happens out of joy because we trust you fully. Pray in Christ's name.